Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, no one has any doubt today that our world is experiencing massive change. In fact, from every venue of life, whether it be from the economic sector or the political, the philosophical or the international, even the social, our day is a day of transition, flux, and overhaul. It's a bold new world, and that bold new world is being thrust upon us, yet of all the changes that are currently underway, perhaps the most unsettling, and for many of us, the most destabilizing or the moral changes. The ones that we are more and more perceiving are carrying the greatest force in the world in which we live. They're the ones that will ultimately shape our destiny, and we know it. But those are also the ones that we find it harder and harder to get a handle on or to make sense of. Not just for non-Christians, but for Christians as well. What is right? That's a question that almost gets in our face at times in this world that we're living in. What is right? And what is wrong? And what is life? And when does it begin? And what is a family? And what is obscene? And what is art? What is a real man? What's a real woman? And what are their responsibilities in being so? Who is God? And in the age you're approaching us, maybe the better question is, who is not God? You know, it's easy, it's really easy to get lost in this bold new world. On your outline, I presented a cartoon that I think sums up the feelings of the majority of Americans today, Christian and non-Christian. And the haunting question that stares at us from that page is, what will keep us afloat? From a moral perspective, what is it that will keep us afloat? I want you to know I believe that that is the most important question of our day. And you will feel it eventually if you don't feel it now. I also believe that this cartoon pretty much sums up the first two messages in the series that I presented. As you may remember, I said that the real issues of our day are not the issues that that young man is swimming in, the issues of abortion or divorce or rights or racism or pornography or violence or whatever they might be. These things are merely symptoms of the age in which we live and of this day of transitional distress. It might be helpful to remind you, though, that every age and every society and every culture has had to deal with things like these. Ours is not the first Every society must address these kind of issues. But the reason so many today feel they are drowning in this stuff, and that's what the young gentleman in the cartoon looks like, doesn't he? Is really, I think, for two reasons. Let me give you two of them. First, the intensity level at which we feel these things. See, it's one thing to be in a culture that is more of a calm sea where from time to time you have to deal with a particular ugly matter it's another thing when those ugly matters are white caps all around you. And today is a day of white caps where wave after wave slaps our eyes with the salty sting of kids killing kids in record numbers, of a friend dying of AIDS, of a marriage that's breaking up, leaving behind another group of children who will feel wounded for a lifetime. Another hero of ours, fallen, because of being caught in immorality. It's those things like that in record numbers that pound us like those waves with a growing sense of hopelessness. So there is the intensity factor of all that that we feel like, what will keep us afloat? But there's a second reason that I think we feel like we're drowning. It's because the answers that have been given to us for most of this century as a replacement for a living, vital relationship with the living God. Those answers have failed us over the last 90 years. Remember, 
from a previous message, we talked about the great changes that swept over America in the late 1890s with the Industrial Age. And with all these things breaking forth, those changes also instituted for us new options for God. We thought of science. We thought of new forms of inventions. Our own prosperity. Our own power in the world. Our own ability to reason once Darwin told us that we had evolved out of the primordial soup. And those things seemed like real viable options. But over the last 90 years, those answers, though still being offered to us, have failed us. The lie that, can buy, that money can buy us happiness has failed us. You know, when I was a young boy, I remember as each president was inaugurated, he always talked about the American dream. But as a young boy sitting there, I knew what he was talking about because the American dream was always framed in material terms. Better housing, better living conditions, more money, more recreation. But you know, we have a lot of more, but a lot less of happiness. The lie that pleasure is more important and a replacement for a purpose in life has failed us. For the last 30 years, we've been a pleasure-seeking culture. And many of our kids at 13, 14, and 15 have experienced more sensual pleasure than most of us did until we were 40 or even 50. And after the shock of it is all worn off and they're bored, there's nothing left but to take their own life, as teenagers are doing in record numbers. The lie that changing our standards or rewriting our moral codes can somehow make us feel good about ourselves that's failed us too. The morals of the media, so captivating, so seductive on the silver screen, that seem to hold so much promise to the young eyes who watch, have failed us miserably in real life. And we're scarred and we know it. Going to church as millions do, but not coming to God as millions don't, has failed us. The philosophy that man's intellect is the answer to this one and only life has failed us. You see, these things were what were offered to us as the substitute, substitutes for a living and vital relationship with the God of the Bible, the God of our forefathers. And as I said in my last message, it is these things, not the issue of abortion or homosexuality or feminism or racism, it's those things behind those points of engagement that are the real issues of our day. And as the picture demonstrates before you, those things are still being thrown into the drowning, swamped public as flotation devices to keep you afloat. But they aren't working. The liberal ethos of American culture where anything goes, where you can believe anything you want, where God is recast into any image that you desire is a prescription for death, not life. It drowns you. It does not save you. And the signs of our dying culture are everywhere around us in America today. The bold new world to which we are headed will in all probability be a very secularized world. Now I want you to know that when I say secularized, I didn't say secular. There's a difference between those two words. If you look up in the dictionary the word secular, you'll find out that secular just means that worldly, th it means the focus is on worldly things that are not religious or spiritual. But in the bold new world that we're headed, we cannot call that word secular because it's filled with many religious things and spiritual items, and they're all around us. On the other hand, to be secularized as opposed to secular expresses not the separation from religious things, but rather the gradual liberation from the hold and influence of those things. They just don't mean much anymore. That's what it means to be secularized. They're around. You participate. You go. You clock in. You pay your tithe. It just doesn't mean that much when it comes to everyday life. You know, Jesus lived in a very religious society. He grew up there as a boy. He lived and died there as a man. People went to the synagogue every Saturday. They were faithful in their giving. But it was also a very secularized culture. 
in that all that religious activity and ritual had very little, if any, effect on how people actually live when it came to everyday life. Our bold new world is moving full steam ahead in exactly the same direction, with fewer and fewer people holding with conviction religious beliefs that then go on and spiritualize their everyday activities in what the Bible used to call holiness. Instead, our religious beliefs are simply thrown into the giant personal mixer of our lives, along with Tom Brokaw and Madonna and how I feel and what my uh, friends might say if I were to do this or that and 2020 and the current condition of my world and my rights and then whatever is the prevailing fad of the culture at that particular point in time. And then I make a decision and out pops my moral answer for the day. Kind of instantaneous. And so I make my decision. But don't hold me to it tomorrow. Just don't hold me to it tomorrow. Because tomorrow is another day. And I might remix the whole match and come up with something that totally contradicted what I did today. You see, among Americans, Christian and non-Christian alike, increasingly they select situational ethics as the morality of choice. That's the bold new world. And on your outline, I've given you two examples of this secularization. One popular in that it's from a research uh, of a pollster by the name of George Barna, and the other is educational from the Arkansas Department of Education. And I want to look at those two. As Barna polled the American public this year, here's what he found out about what people say they believe. They say that most Americans reject the notion of absolute truth. That is, that absolute truth, what is really right and really wrong, that doesn't exist. That truth is evolving, changing, but that's not truth at all. That's just an opinion. Secondly, that a growing proportion of people, now up to one-third of the population, do not believe in God described in the Bible, but have other notions of who or what God is. Most adults do not believe that Satan is a real being. Most people believe that it does not matter which God you pray to because, in a sense, every deity is ultimately the same, just shrouded in terms that different cultures have used. A minority of Americans have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In another poll that Barna conducted, he made the astounding observation that 50% of all the people who attend Protestant churches do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ by them telling that they don't. 50%. And you may say, well, man, that's great because they're there and they can be evangelized. The problem is, is that three-fourths of that 50% have been attending that Protestant church for over 10 years. Nearly two out of three adults contend that the choice of one religious faith over another is irrelevant. Americans are even, nearly evenly divided regarding whether or not Christ was perfect. Almost half of the public now believe that Jesus made mistakes while here on earth. And when you talk to such people, and there are a lot of people, and they'll gladly give you their opinion because we are poll popular today. If you talk to people and say, why do you believe that? Not, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? They don't know why. And the same person that said they reject absolute truth today might say they believe it tomorrow. Just ask them a different question. You see, most people do not have thought through beliefs. They're used to living in sound bites and newspaper summaries. And they go through life just reacting and being pushed and pulled by whatever the tide of the culture might be. And when they come up with a decision, a moral decision of the moment, they do so on the same basis that they buy a Toyota. It just feels right. Tomorrow I may not like it, but today it just feels right. Secondly, I've given you a cartoon. Really, it's a picture that came out of the Arkansas Department of Education brochure promoting the governor's school. We have a governor's school. Around 400 students attend that governor's school. And this came out of that. And it's a picture, I think, of a, it's a little hard to understand, but I think what we have here is a, a teacher, an educator there, and the sense is that they're breaking off the ball and chain of traditional morality and ethics. So these young minds can determine for themselves at 18, year, 18 years old what is right and what is wrong and what their standards are and what they're not going to be. You know, previous cultures thought it invaluable to draw on the wealth of history as guiding light so as to give those sacred treasures to another generation to keep them from making the same errors that they had made in the past. 
But today we feel like we're bent on cutting off those things, eradicating those, saying those are holding you back. At least that's the feeling I get. You need to think for yourself. You need to get freed up from all that superstition. And when you do, you can get higher and clearer about who you want to be. And because you're the elite, then you can impose those much better standards on a future generation when you're the leaders of society. That, I think, is the communication that comes through to me in that idea. But then we turn to someone like the philosophy professor at the University of Chicago, Alan Bloom, who a few years ago wrote the best-selling book, Closing of the American Mind. Most people heard that and wondered what it meant, but there was a subtitle to it that really gives you the content of the book. The subtitle was this, How Higher Education Has Failed Our Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. That was the subtitle. And his thesis was that once youth come to the university, he says there's one thing you can be sure of when a student comes to the university, he doesn't believe in absolute truth. That's today's student. But once he is established in the relativity of truth, Bloom contends that there is no longer a necessary and critical framework for thinking at all. He lives in a moral morass, an educational chaos, in which he's grasping at different straws, and though he may choose one today, don't hold him to it tomorrow. And it leaves him in a moral vacuum. And what was seen as opening kids' minds to truth, he says, ultimately, just simply closes them. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, because in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes the same comment, but from a little bit different perspective. In the book of Romans, the first couple of chapters really are an apologetic on culture. And in the midst of that apologetic, Paul makes these two statements that I think fit well with the day in which we live. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 21. He is speaking of the leaders, the educators, the philosophers of his day. And he says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. Now, that word speculations is an interesting word. It really is the Greek word dialogismos. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's of two words, a prefix, dia, and then logismos. Dia just is the prefix that means through, through something. Logismos is the Greek word from which we get our English word logic or reasoning. And so the word, if you were just going to take it very literally, it just means to reason through an issue. Now let's look at it in the verse in that kind of light. For even though they knew God, they did not honor or give thanks to Him, but they became futile as they reasoned through different issues of life. It was vain for them. Rejecting God and absolute truth, Paul says, results in losing your ability to properly reason through the issues that confront you in everyday life. You lose the essential element of the equation. And when you lose X in the equation, your outcome is always skewed, wrong, in error. God is the critical framework for thinking clearly. And without Him, look at the last line. It says, their foolish hearts were darkened. Bloom says that without absolute truth, the mind is closed, not open. Paul says, without God and His absolute truth, the truth of our forefathers upon which they built this country. Without that, the foolish mind grows dark. And you know, the results practically can be seen everywhere in our culture today. The foolishness of man's intellect, his great reasoning power, his remake of society in his own image as he doesn't honor God. He knows God, but he doesn't honor God. But in place of God, he puts himself. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 22, look at it there. What a powerful indictment in his day and ours, professing to be wise. PhD, LLD, THD, and every other title, they became fools. As I told the first service, we could stop at this point and we could just rehearse among each other a litany of items in how our world has double-crossed itself and made fools of itself in the midst of its great intellect, which it parades on TV screens and in different popular debates that look nice in the clinical setting of a studio, 
but which don't work in real life. And so we get issues like this. Here's a lady in Southern California in the last few months who gave birth to a child she didn't want, so she went and drowned her newborn infant in the toilet. A hospital staff in the same town, at the same time, delivers a newly born infant to a young lady who also doesn't want the child because the child is mildly retarded. So that young child is taken, as many are in today's hospitals, into a room, a small room, and left to die of starvation. The first lady goes to trial in Southern California for murder. The second lady goes home. And the hospital staff gets paid thousands of dollars for a job well done. See, professing to be wise, it becomes foolishness. Or how about the fact that we exalt the handicap with things like the Special Olympics? And I'm so glad we do because it exalts the sacredness of human life and it, and it illustrates over and over again their value to society and that they can make a productive contribution. But let them be found out in the womb before birth. And we give a wholly different message that they're not wanted, that they're just a drain on society and they need to be eradicated. We take down the Ten Commandments in school and we sanitize our school textbooks of any reference to God so that any young boy or girl could not in any way tell you why the pilgrims came to America. Maybe they were just taking a vacation. But there's no reference to God because a reference to God would somehow encourage religion and God forbid we do that. But at the same time, we teach value-neutral, safe-sex te techniques of every kind, hand out defective condoms, and teach them ways to go about engaging in sex in ways that would not be appropriate from the pulpit. And then we go out and deny that we are encouraging promiscuity. See, professing to be wise, that sounds so good on TV, but it doesn't work in real life. It's foolishness. You see, the problem is our bold new world is ignoring the past warnings of history that have been sounded out time and time again by writers, by philosophers, and by historians. And I want to give you a sampling. For instance, let's go back 1,600 years to one of the greatest thinkers of our day who still has a profound influence on the church, but he had a profound influence on Rome. His name was Augustine. He was a brilliant philosopher. And in 400 A.D., he argued that the visible as he called it, city of God must be influenced by the invisible city of man. Uh, I mean, invisible city of God if that society were to survive. His was not a theory. His was a practical observation because Augustine had watched his beloved Rome, an empire that was thought to be unconquerable for centuries. In fact, by many of its citizens, it was proclaimed to be an eternal empire. Over the last years of Augustine's life, he had watched his beloved Rome sink like the Titanic under the weight of its own internal immoral rottenness. As barbarians, the Visigoths, overran the city of Rome and pillaged the city and killed the populace, he wrote his book, City of God. Used to be read at Harvard, but no longer. But that city of God was an epitaph to the Roman Empire, why it fell. And it also served as a warning to future countries and future empires about exalting man and excusing God from everyday life. He said it won't work. It will fail. Left alone, Augustine reasoned in a very effective way. The city of man carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. And that's why Rome fell. In his classic novel, The Brothers... Karamazov, the 19th century Russian novelist, Dostoevsky, asks, can we be good without God? What a wonderful question to ask. He answers that, but the answer came back even clearer a century later. In fact, it shouted back its answer a century later to the Russian people who after 15 million Russians had brutally perished in the flames of atheistic Russia. The evil empire collapsed from within crushed by its own foolish belief in man and man alone. You know, today, we watch Western democracies with their liberal ethos, including America, think that God no longer has a real relevant place in everyday life. It has led the Japanese philosopher 
Takeshi Unkara to predict the failure that to predict that the failure of Marxism was only a precursor to the collapse of all the Western democracies, because, and I'm quoting him, because both invited failure, each in their own way, by excommunicating spiritual life from their societies. Chuck Colson said, there has never been a case in history in which a city, I mean, in which a society has been able to survive without a strong moral ethic. And there has never been a time when a strong moral code has not been informed and upheld by religion. There are many historians who would say yes to what Chuck Colson said. One of those is a good friend of mine because I've read him for years. His name is Will Durant. He was an agnostic. He left the church as a young boy, never went back to the church. He studied and researched history for 70 of his 90 years. At the end of those 70 years of research, he published a real small book that goes along with the 12 huge volumes of his world history, and it was called The Ten Lessons from History. Ten things that he could say history taught without a doubt, universal for all cultures. And one of those was on religion. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, and I quote, even the skeptical historian develops a humble respect for religion. Since he sees it functioning seemingly indispensable in every land and age, philosophy has in itself found no substitute for the moral function of the church. In fact, there is no significant example in history of a society maintaining its moral life without the aid of religion, end of quote. Well, despite these historical warnings, here we are in America, where we have reasoned ourselves into believing, I believe, that we can divorce ourselves from the God of our forefathers and somehow remain good in our reasoning powers. And I would say, professing to be wise, we are becoming fools. We can't be that way. We can't be good alone. History shouts against such thoughts. It won't work. And the plagues we see sweeping over our culture in whatever form they are, be it violence in the suburbs or violence in the inner cities, the disintegration of families, the skyrocketing divorce rate, the child abuse, which last night was reported up 1,000% from 15 years ago, are the sexually transmitted diseases that we see infecting our youth and our college students and even our adults. It's just the beginning, folks. It's just a start for the bold new world. Now, I know that sounds bleak, but the whole point of the message is lost in a bold new world. And I want you to know there are millions of people who are staggering around in that kind of world who need us. They're not against us. They're hurting people. And they're wondering, where do I go and what do I do? And how do I make sense out of all of life? And therein lies the opportunity. The bold new world will increasingly sense its lostness and give the church an opportunity. The shelf life of sin today, quite frankly, grows ever shorter. You know that? People run in and out of sin so quickly. They run in there thinking, maybe this will help me. You know, a new seminar, a new self-help, a new this, a new relationship. And they're there for a short time and they leave it in and out, in and out. It's when they come out, after they've entered another bear pit and been mauled, they come out. And you know what they're asking? What is life all about? Here I've got another wound on top of another wound. What do I do now? And therein is a wonderful opportunity for the church. They know life is out of control. Talk to your friends at work. Talk to them while you're exercising. Listen to them as you talk across the fence. They sense that something is desperately wrong. In our culture, they can't necessarily put their finger on it. They're not thinking that deeply about it, but they're afraid. And they're hurting, and they've been hurt, and they're burned out, and they're looking for answers. You know, I had a friend that I have engaged this last really six months. We, we got together on a mutual kind of business arrangement because we were working on a project, and he was helping me rather on a project. Philosophically, lifestyle-wise, he is as far from me as you can almost possibly get. And it has been real interesting to me to watch this person because originally we just kind of were two people meeting for a task. 
But over time, there were opportunities to talk and sit at times and, and interact and, and uh, laugh about some things and those kind of things. And in the last couple of weeks, one day I picked up a phone call from him and I thought it was probably that something had happened in our little project that had gone askew. And he said, no, no, I was just calling. I was just sitting here thinking, you know, we've been together for about six months, he said. And uh, I don't know exactly how to say this, but I consider you my friend. Gosh, it brought tears to my eyes. Because you know what? That's where millions of people are. They could just find somebody to say it to. They're yearning for a friendship. They would love to meet somebody to have the old virtues of trust, of love, of acceptance. And if there's a God out there, I want you to know, those people aren't anti-God. If there's a God out there that could really do something, I'd like to meet him. And I think this is what this gentleman was really telling me. You know, the brave new church, that's us. We're going to have to move out towards those people. We can't expect those people necessarily to come here. Some will. But we're going to have to move out towards those people. And we're going to have to move out towards those people in a way that we can really help them. Now, I want you to write down these three things. If nothing else, I want you to get these three things. Because if we're going to move towards the people, we're going to have to do them with these three elements involved. First, personal attention. Personal attention. People don't want to go to things. They want a live, breathing, warm body to respond to them. They want somebody they can interact with, to relate to over life and even spiritual matters. But they don't just need it. It's not going to be instantaneous. They need somebody to process life with. And so part of what we're going to have to do is tithe part of our time to spend with people, not with any, quote, agenda other than just kind of relating and to move towards people, not because they're going to move to us, because they aren't. But if our society has any hope at all, Christians are going to have to recapture the fervency that we see all through the pages of the New Testament in moving out, not inviting necessarily to but to do that, we're going to have to spend time. Now, that automatically poses a problem. Because if we're going to reach a lot of people, I can't give a lot of time because I don't have it. But I always tell people, if you would just look for one person, just one, just ask God in this year, one person that you could, for the sake of your concern for the world, could just love on, spend time with, invite alongside, we would have one of the most thrilling evangelistic churches in all of America. If everybody just did one to one. Second thing people are going to need is an effective presentation of the gospel. And when I say that, the days of where you can stand up to a large crowd and say you need to get saved or you need salvation or what, people don't understand those words anymore. We're in a post-literate biblical culture. Those words, those are just kind of archaic words. What do they really mean? You're going to have to help them up close and personal, help them understand what that means. It's one thing to talk about you believe the Bible, but in our culture, you're going to have to tell them why you believe the Bible and on what basis you believe the Bible and why it's different than the Book of Mormon or the Koran or whatever else. Can you do that? You're going to have to tell them why you believe in the God of the Bible and that all faiths aren't the same. All religions aren't the same. You can't lump them in together. But when they asked you, well, why not? You're going to be able to explain why? See, that's what I'm talking about. We're going to have to engage at a whole nother level. And it's going to challenge some of it, but it's going to be good. Because, you know, our kids ask the same questions, if you just listen. They need to know not what, but why. Why is Jesus important to my life? Do they understand that? Then thirdly, our culture is going to need living proof. Remember I told you that one of the major issues we face today is our culture is skeptical of us. They've seen too much fraud, too much hypocrisy, too much pompous boasting and in falling. What people want to see is a real live Christian, which means they want to be next to somebody who not only says these things in a way that makes sense, but lives them out, not perfectly, because we need a Savior, but lives them out in a way they say, you know, 
That connects for me. I do see a difference. Those three things, personal attention, an effective presentation, and living proof. Now, I have two practical opportunities for you. First, in this next year, you know, there are some of you here in this room who probably are already counting the days till you get kicked out of, so to speak, community groups. And you're being asked to go to common cause groups and you're wondering, well, what kind of common cause could I go to? May I suggest that one of the best common causes we could form here in this church is a group of people who simply have a burden on their heart to reach people who are lost. Good people. People just wandering around, making mistakes, injuring themselves, and they don't have a clue about what they really believe. But there would be a group of people who would band together and say, let's just reach lost people. Let's reach out to our friends and neighbors and form a group with a mission to do that. There are some of you who really work well with people. You can walk into a room, I'm amazed at some of you, and you can know everybody and they love you. Boy, you may be an evangelist. There are others of you that you just have a unique ability to bond with people. They, they feel like you really feel with them. That They don't mind opening up your, their life to you. You may have a gift of evangelism. But in the bold new world, we're going to need groups. And I'm praying that God will raise up numbers of people in our body who like to get together and meet each other's needs, just like a community group does. But when they leave that group, they got a mission. And they've carved out time for that mission. And it's very singular in nature. And that is, when this year is out, we're going to have brought in some people into the kingdom. A second opportunity I have is on the end of your outline. It's the class that I'm teaching next week called One to One. That class is not only designed to help you have an effective presentation of the gospel, it's designed to help you. It's not just for you to give away your faith. One of the deep concerns I have for people is that Christianity is such a wonderful faith with so much historic precedence, with so much authenticating information from all quarters, and it is so wonderful that you know that information and know why you believe. And so if you're here, and maybe I asked some of those questions a minute ago, and you were going, you know, I don't think I could answer those questions. Maybe this class is for you. Maybe you need to understand. Maybe part of what keeps you from living a vibrant Christian life is there's no concrete under there. It's just sand. You need some roots. That'd be a great class to come to. I'd love to have you a part of that. But maybe some of you have people you'd like to talk to, but you're not sure you can answer their questions. I can help you do that in a way that I think is effective for a lifetime. But let me turn it now to just where we are in this room, though. The bold new world is also going to require the church to go back to biblical basis, basics. And I'm going to ask if you would to turn to a real familiar verse, John 3.16. Maybe you learned that when you were growing up in Sunday school, or maybe you love to watch sporting events and you saw a guy with orange and green and red hair holding out the sign at every World Series and Super Bowl. But John 3.16 is a very famous verse, and I want to read it for you and make a few observations. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want you to look at the verse for a minute. There are a number of words that create a rich theology here, but the three that I want to focus on, first is the word perish. Oftentimes we just run right by it. But if we change the verse to read that God gave His only begotten Son, and if you don't believe in Him, then perish becomes much more stark because it says, you will. You know, as I've watched people over the years, I'm glad that God has given me a softer heart for people who are dying. There, there, there are neighborhoods where I watch families and I watch these kids walk away and I find my gut tightening up and my eyes watering because I know those children are going to be hurt and those, that couple is dying for lack of understanding. They need us. They really need us. They're perishing. There are some of you in this room who because you've not really understood the gospel, not really, you're perishing. And you know it. You're not sure what to do about it. You're, you're, you're coming to church, but you're dying. Second word that really stands out, though, is love. God loves us. I can't think of anything people want more than to feel loved. To feel that somebody accepts them. Feel somebody that will take care of them. 
kind of a big daddy, so to speak, who when they step out of line will correct them but won't crush them, that will deal gently and patiently for a lifetime. And in that we find a God who not only loves us but takes the initiative towards us because we would never do it towards Him. We might feign that we're okay and that kind of thing, but we'd never move towards God, not really, until He captures our heart, but He loves us. And then the last word that really hits me is just the word believe. Whoever believes in Him. And you know, there is a whole theology in and of itself because, you know, as I've watched as a pastor over the years, I see people believe in different ways. Can I just give you a couple of samples of how people believe? First, I would call custom-made belief. There are those who kind of have a custom-made belief. Time Magazine even captured that in an article on baby boomers going back to church. Here's what it said. It said, increasingly numbers of baby boomers who left the fold years ago are returning to church again. But many are traveling from church to church and faith to faith, shopping for a custom-made God. A God who is in their image. That's a, that's a belief that perishes. That's what the Bible calls not faith. The Bible calls that idolatry, where we create something. You know, where can I go where they say it the way I want to hear it? Where they say it the way I want to feel it? Where they don't make me feel uncomfortable, but they affirm me wherever I am at this point in my life. That's what I want to hear. In the olden days, they'd go out and they'd carve something out of wood and set it up and say, that's what it tells me. That's idolatry. It's not a real faith. Then I see people who what I, what I would call have a superficial belief. In fact, in John, if you're still there in the Gospel of John, you might look at chapter 2 at the very end, verses 23 to 25. I want you to feel this interaction with Jesus and these people. It says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in Him. And you say, well, hooray. But then it adds this phrase, beholding His signs, which He was doing. And that gives us a little clue to what's coming next. Verse 24, But even though they believed in Him, Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man, and He knew that what these people believed was only superficial. They saw Jesus' signs and they believed. But you know what they didn't see? Jesus. That's what they didn't see. People come to church and you know what they see? Help. They come to church and they see support. They come to church and they see friends. They come to church and they feel like they're going to get an uplift. But so often, you know what they don't see? Jesus. They believe in those things, but they don't believe in him. And John 3.16 says, whoever believes in Him, Him alone, He'll grant eternal life. Then there's what I call acquaintance belief. It's not conversion, it's just acquaintance. And we see that in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Look at the first few verses of chapter 3. It says, now there was a man, man of the Pharisees. Now when you see that word Pharisees, just right on there, religious. This is a pastor. Here's a pastor, and he's named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know, we're acquainted with, we're convinced that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And you'd think Jesus would give him a slap on the back and say, boy, I'm so glad you finally know that and believe in me. But see, just like of what the verse says up above, no one needed to bear witness to Jesus about man. He could see the heart. He could read the face. He looked into Nicodemus' heart and he said what was not there, the kingdom of God. And he said in verse 3, he didn't even affirm him for his compliment. He just said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Knowing about God is not enough. Coming and being familiar with creeds as people can recite those all over America, it's not enough. Being on a church roll, it's not enough. Being the pastor's friend, it's not enough. And yet millions think it is. 
But you know, with those millions also comes perish. Falling short. I want to contrast that with 20 years of experience of watching people. You know, I, I get a unique, intimate, kind of 50-yard line seat into people's lives. Some people have that privilege. I have it. And I like it because I get to see people at close range. And I've seen each of these kind of beliefs. And I've also seen each one of those first kinds of belief never deliver anyone to a different lifestyle. They just put a glaze over with those things and they still deal with the same old poisonous and rottenness and they learn how to manipulate and deny and shape things and stay away from anything that scares them and run like crazy anything that will affirm them. But it never changes their actual practice of living to in conformity with the God who has revealed himself in this book. But on the other hand, I have seen something breathtakingly beautiful about some people. Just watching them real up close and looking at their lives and realizing that in some way, these people came to a place where they looked at Jesus Christ and they surrendered themselves sincerely. Maybe the word is they abandoned themselves to Him. They can't prove all of it. They had a simple gospel presentation. They sensed the Spirit moving on them. And what they did is they just simply reached up to heaven and they said, Lord, I trust you with my life and I'm going to believe your word. And at times they've gotten extra support for that belief, but it's been an unwavering conviction. Somehow they had authentic belief. And they went from acquaintance or superficiality to what I would call real conversion. And over a lifetime it shows. Now, it doesn't show in the fact that they no longer have problems. It doesn't show in the sense that they cleared up all the flaws in their life. It doesn't mean that they don't still sin, and sometimes dramatically so. I don't want to give that impression so that you think I'm presenting a standard so high that you can't reach it. But despite all those things, what I have seen is their heart, which doesn't seem to waver because of the conversion of the heart that took place when they were born again. It seems that the deep chokehold of self got broken in that moment of authentic faith and they became real as God wants you to be real. In place of self, they had a clear eye and a consistent passion. They want to do right. They want to. They want to honor Christ. They don't always do it, but they want to. And when they fail, they feel authentic pain. They hurt because they fail the person they really love. But they get up and they pursue right because they want to. They don't have to. The Bible is their standard and they don't get uptight when it says things they don't like because they really believe God has my best, not the perverse generation I live in, but God. They fight for right even at the risk of personal sacrifice. They struggle against themselves. And up close, real close, what you sense in these people is authenticity. The absence of pretense, of self-pity, of denial, of manipulating spiritual things so they can still do what they want. No, what you find there is people who don't just know God, but they love God. They've been converted to God. And for them, life is acknowledging God in everything. That's what it means to be born again. Now I have a final question before I let you go. And that's this. Are you convinced that you are born again? Or do you look at your own life as one that might be teetering with these lesser beliefs that have never brought about any real conversion of your heart? There's, and here are the signs. There's still things that you're afraid of with God. There's still things that you're trying to defend yourself about because people are saying, you know, this isn't right. But you're going to convince people it is right. There's still, there's still a lack of sincere pain or weeping when you sin. It's kind of like, well, you know, God forgive me. Are you born again? See, I think before we go out and talk to the lost, we've got to be sure we're found first. 
It is so important that you understand God loves you. He does. And anything that He says is for your best. That's why it says, should not perish, but have eternal life. Life is with capital letters in my mind. But you have to abandon yourself to Him in faith. I want to give some of you that opportunity as we close. Would you bow your heads? And if I'm speaking to you, or if this has touched you, if you feel the Spirit of God touching you, and you say, I don't know if I know God. Not really. Not like He's talking about. Not authentically. At this point, it doesn't rest with God. It rests with you. Has life dealt a fair hand to you? Probably not. But would you like to have God deal a fair hand to you? You can only reach up and grab His hand when you let go of the things that you've been holding on to for life, which have failed you. There's a place where you finally have to abandon yourself to Him. So in the quiet of this moment, I want to give you the opportunity, just simply by faith, that's the beauty of this, that you can call out to God in the silence and the serenity of your own heart and just say, Lord Jesus, I want to give my life to you. Of all the figures in human history, you're the only one who has stood the test of time, who've demonstrated your authenticity both in life and in death, who says that you love me, who didn't come to get anything, just to give it. There's no match for you. And I've believed this evil culture and it's hurt me. But in this moment, I want to believe you so that I won't drown. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to believe your word. And I'm going to honor you and thank you that you will preserve me in this bold new world. You have said if I asked you to come into my life, that you would come and live there forever. You would never leave me. There was nothing I could do to get rid of you. That you would save me and I would be secure forever. So I'm asking, and I thank you that you're listening and that you will give me what you promised. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.